0: Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonio, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to this episode of the Alamo Hour. Today's guest uh, needs a little introduction. Mayor Nuremberg joins us. Uh, he was District 8 City Councilman. He's been elected to two terms in office as our mayor. Uh, he's currently guiding our city through what has to be, you know, a sort of unprecedented uh, strain economically and just generally for all the citizenry. i met. Ron in 2015, when he was a a city councilman, he's a mutual friend, uh, introduced us to ask him to come on to the show whenever we started, then the pandemic happened. I've pestered him for a while to come on. So Ron, thank you so much for coming on and doing this.
1: Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, so, you know, the, the the goal of our show is to give a little bit of color to the people that are sort of making decisions and doing fun things and, and have passions about our city. I don't think you can be much more passionate about the city than being serving as the mayor. Everybody has to go through a top 10. I'm going to go through that with you. Just some general questions about who you are, uh, bounce around when and, and why did you end up moving to San Antonio?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, um, so thank you for having me. It's, um, it's, a, it's been a while since I saw you, so oh, no. th- this will have to suffice <laughs> for now. But no, I, I grew up um, just north of here in Austin, Texas. I was actually born on the East Coast in Boston. We moved to Austin, Texas in 1980. My, ja- my dad's job moved us down there. Uh, loved Austin in the 80s growing up there, um, kind of a, a residential neighborhood uh, friendly type of community. Um, and I was about to go back to the East coast for school. And my dad, uh, convinced me to come down to San Antonio to check out some schools. And, and, um, I went down to Trinity and I fell in love with it and I decided to enroll at Trinity. And, and after four years at Trinity, I fell in love with San Antonio It was in the mid nineties. And, you know, San Antonio was, uh, sort of coming into its own at that point. I remember that mayor peak was, in office towards the end, uh, and he had a great vision for the city, embracing green spaces, kind of building uh, an urban environment and uh, embracing all of the cultural assets of the city, and And that's the San Antonio that I, I sort of grew up with, uh, for lack of a better phrase, and And went away for graduate school and met my wife, and we decided we're going to plant our roots in San Antonio. I've been here ever since.
0: Well, uh, we're happy to have you. I'm happy to have you. Um, you, you're very prominent on social media, so I follow everything you're doing. And it's, this is a tough time to have sort of a lighthearted conversation, but I want to ask about some things you're not sort of covering, you know, in our house, we are trying to, you know, support a bunch of our local restaurants and do things that probably is not the most economical thing to do at this time, but we know our friends need it. Any places you're, you know, frequenting eating out, are you trying to spread the love? Are y'all cooking at home? What are y'all doing?
1: Uh, all of the above um you know erica my wife bears the brunt of the burden uh, when it comes to you know my son during the day he's at school uh, or he's at home uh, in school he's in sixth grade and um you know we we try to eat together it's it's amazing this pandemic has brought us closer together in many ways the community uh, and certainly we have regular meal times now which is kind of strange uh, but we're trying to we're, we, we try to pick up food from uh, as many different um, r- local restaurants as we can. Every Friday, Erica goes and gets a ton of dishes from Clementine, which is really close to uh. our, our Northwest military. Uh, for Mother's Day, I picked up a meal kit uh, that uh, Southerly was doing. So we're really trying to support local as much as we can. And of course, um, all the other meals um, were home cooking.
0: Yeah, I I, just, I was just looking at Clementine's thing yesterday, but I I'll do burgers, so I'll do Clementine later. Um, you know, these are sort of strange times where people have to kind of. You always hear the phrase that sometimes people are thrust into leadership roles, or you're, or these things are thrust upon you. You're in a you're in a leadership role in our city, and you're in a guiding time or guiding our city through a very tough time. Are there any sort of leadership styles or figures you've looked upon and you've thought that's the type of leader I want to be? That's who I want to emulate when I lead people in a tough time.
1: You know, it's not any one single person. I think every everyone I've ever come in contact with and had the pleasure of being mentored by, I try to take you know something from them. Uh, but I, but I think the person I've I've gotten to know the most as a leader and and sort of emulate styles. And someone who I admire very much is Mayor Hardberger. And, and it's strange because uh, he and I have become very good friends. Uh, he's been a mentor of mine since my political life began. But it is strange because um, Mayor Hardberger, of course, had a full legal career before he came into public office. But uh, he became known as our mayor through a, a time of fairly, fairly significant crisis, uh, particularly with Hurricane Katrina in the aftermath. And how we rebuilt uh, or, or helped our neighbors rebuild, and you know, you're right, I, and I agree with that 100%. That you know, you don't pick moments; moments pick you. And and it, it, if I could have the choice of things that would happen externally uh, during my, my time as mayor, I certainly wouldn't have picked the pandemic. But you know, you deal with that. And um, certainly, the lessons I've learned from from Phil have helped in, in this time for sure.
0: Well, I like you calling out Phil cause Phil does did the type of law that I do. So he's a okay. legend in our world as well. Um, yeah. I ask everybody, what are sort of some of your hidden gems in our city? I mean, I've heard everything from generally the Pearl to, I mean, very specific little restaurants or churches. So what are, what are you, some of the, your favorite little off the beaten path spots in, in San Antonio?
1: You know, there, there, there's a lot. Um, you know, I, I was uh, I had the pleasure of being a council member of district 8 for uh, two terms there is a place I don't think many people know uh, very well but is an extraordinary estate and park and that's denham Estate park there's a beautiful mm-hmm. pond there it doesn't have a natural water source it just stays full and every once in a while we have to go in as a city and fill it but it's got a Korean pavilion that was a gift to the city actually when when mayor Hardberger uh, was mayor he Established a sister city relationship with uh, with Gwangju, South Korea, and part of that relationship was the gift of of this Korean pavilion. Mm. It's it's amazing. It's beautiful, ornate. Doesn't have a single screw. It's all wood. We we had the we had the pleasure of reciprocating that gift uh, just this past fall. It took ten years for for us to really find the perfect thing and have a local artist create a monument for them, and we took it over there. Um. So that's one place. What was it? You know, what there, was the monument? Uh, it, it was a, it was a monument to friendship, uh, and it was uh, you know a, a, a local artist. It had to be assembled. It was um, lighted sculpture. Huh. Uh, well, I'll will send you a photo. It's yeah, pretty amazing. Please. Unfortunately, uh, I had to come back early, so Councilman Kearns had to stand in the actual <laughs> ceremony for me. But we finally made a trip out to South Korea, and and um, so that's one. You know, there there are so many amazing places in San Antonio because we have such a massive footprint. Um, and I, I find myself increasingly spending a lot of time on the south side, uh, particularly some of the ecological um, systems that have been restored by the River South yeah. uh, projects. And that's amazing. Uh, of course, we love um, um, Norteños uh, to go and have uh, lunch there. The uh, the drive in. Awesome. Oh Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just, there's too many to list. Sure. But, uh, yeah.
0: Well, we've been highlighting some, I've never heard of, it's a Denman park.
1: Denman estate park. Yeah. Know? I'd never
0: heard of that. So we're going to put some you, stuff you up about that. Yeah. It's, we'll. it's beautiful. Of um, other than weightlifting, what other hobbies do you have?
1: <laughs> I love music. Um, do you play it? Uh, used to, used to be in a couple bands. What, not, what instrument not great, but you know, uh, out front. <laughs> so you are the singer. Did you, you play rhythm that. guitar yeah, as well I or just sing? A bit. Uh, what's that? Did
0: you play like rhythm guitar too or did you just sing? No, 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 no. just
1: Yeah, just, yeah okay. just vocals. What kind of um, bands? Metal? Uh No, no. It was mostly like classic rock and uh, cover. Okay. Not, not great, but, you know, we, we had fun. All right. Uh, I, I did have a band that played originals and we, we did our own stuff in, in Philly when I was there for grad school, but um so that's fun. But I, I love all kinds of music. And one of the things that I do every day, uh, just to unwind is when everybody goes to sleep, I got to go out on the back porch and just put on some earphones. And even if it's just five, 10 minutes, just kind of zone out, listen to some good music, all kinds of genres. Um, you know, have a beer on occasion and, uh, just let the, let the day escape me before we get back into it.
0: Anything you're listening to on repeat right now,
1: you know, uh, on the drive in we just noticed that i guess because of furloughs at siri or something uh the truck we drive in has um a, a subscription so because of the furloughs they put, put a lot of uh, automated djs on okay and uh there's a led zeppelin station so i've strangely enough been listening to a lot of Ze- led zeppelin the last couple of couple of days not um, strange at
0: all i mean they're incredible i mean
1: yeah. But you know, you get into a phase it's been yeah. a while since I really listened to Led Zeppelin. On I'm pretty, in a pink Floyd it.
0: phase right now. Oh, are you? Yeah. It's just for whatever well, reason. My
1: favorite band of all time is the doors. Okay. So I always go back to that. Um, but no, there, there there's I've been reading that there is a strange nostalgia for, uh, old time rock and roll right now. Hmm. Uh, you know, fifties, late fifties, rock and roll doo-wop, uh, like I, Elvis I put Elvis. Uh, I had, you remember that song, uh, "Sleepwalk." sleepwalk yeah. by Santo and Johnny. Yeah. Um, it was featured in La Bamba uh-huh. anyway, found that song. And I just, it's, you know, you, you, you listen to a song you hadn't heard in a long time, but you, it, you're so familiar to you. Uh, so you just end up listening to that one song for about an hour on repeat. That was one of those things. My favorite song of all time is uh crimson and clover. Okay, um, Tommy, Tommy yeah. James and Shondells. Yeah. Yeah. That was my wedding song, too. All right.
0: Or not. Well, my mom made me listen to all of that growing up, so I probably am more yeah. well-versed than I should. You should listen the- to Orville Peck, if you have not.
1: Orville Peck.
0: Orville Peck. He sounds like a mix between um, Elvis and Old Swing Western, almost. It's this weird, super cool sound. He's He's been on repeat for me lately. But it's okay. got a familiar sound, even though it's new music.
1: Yeah, and there's... Uh, I always find... I can't ever, you should be able to do work and read on a plane because it's good quiet time. And usually I can do some reading, but I'm always listening to music. I just, it's good relaxation time on a plane. So I always find, discover new old things or old new things um, when I'm on a plane. And in the fall, actually, the trip to Asia, um, I was starting to listen to a lot of electronica um, from Canada and from Europe and there's a band called Grimes that I got into for a little while, but I never thought I'd like electronica. Yeah. Uh, no. But that, that it ended up getting on repeat, uh, for a while. So okay. all, kind, all you, kinds.
0: You check out Orville Peck. I'll check out Grimes.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, do it. All right. No
0: favorite fiesta <laughs> event.
1: Um, there's a few, we love pack fest at Palo Alto college. Um, never been, yeah, you gotta go. Yeah. Um, good bands good food good okay. people um also love taste new orleans obviously neosa classic um they're all good man
0: king william fair seems to be like the hand the runaway favorite on oh, the yeah, show yeah. so it, far it,
1: it, yeah yeah the parades are fantastic
0: fiesta arts fair is my favorite
1: it's quite like king, king william fair is in a different league
0: yeah so. no it's its own it's its own thing yeah Um, So I I told I put put up on our social that you were coming on the show and I asked people to give me questions. And one of them, it was great. A great question is in this very stressful time, you're seeing kind of the best come out of people. Are there any stories that, that maybe people haven't been told of some of the best of humanity coming out the silver linings to what our city city's doing right now that you can share with us? Like the guys at Folklore Coffee are doing some incredible stuff, feeding elderly people. I mean, you never even hear about that. Somebody put me onto that, and I looked it up. And I mean, that's a fantastic story that nobody's telling. Uh, Anything else like that?
1: Uh, Every day. uh, All day, every day. Um, You know, something that doesn't really uh, get told so much, we see the iconic photos of the food bank lines. And that has become sort of one of the pictures of this pandemic is the lines of cars what was extraordinary to me uh, the last couple of times I went out there is the lines of cars are exceeded by the number of volunteers that are there. You know, it always, it, it, is never, it never fails San Antonio that whenever there's a crisis that people just come out in droves to help, uh, whether it's our own community or it's someone else. So that, that's, that's pretty remarkable. I, I keep seeing photos of uh, friends' children on uh, social media where uh, people who work in the healthcare field and they have uh, used sidewalk chalk uh, to welcome their parents home and they you know they're, they're calling their parents heroes um, you know and, and, and redefining what that term means for kids growing up. Um, you know my, my hats off to all the teachers that are dealing with, uh, the, the extreme pivot that we've had to do in, in school, in, in school, um, you know, there's, there's just a constant source of, uh, of compassion and examples of, of solidarity that we, we draw from to get us through. And, and I think San Antonio, uh, continues to exemplify the very best of people when it comes to getting through this pandemic.
0: I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, the last question. Then we're going to get into sort of what's going on with the city. Uh, how many tattoos do you have? <laughs> <laughs> hey, the the, the public uh, wants to know these things.
1: <laughs> too. Okay, two. the one, one one on either either forearm. The ones
0: yeah. that have been highlighted.
1: It's, it's the only ones. I promise you. Right. I, I promise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, Ron, you're 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 the the mayor of the seventh large largest city in the United States. Um, you recently were named uh, a New Deal leader. You've done great things, and I, I really I love the stuff you've done with the Alamo Promise and transportation and addressing housing issues. How much money did you raise for the food bank on your your birthday? Give it kept going up and up and up and up.
1: Yeah, uh, I was amazed by that because uh, I started with a thousand dollars, and I thought, okay, got to get this, and <laughs> I can put my own in um, just to make sure we get there. Uh, $65,000. Okay. I think it was amazing. like
0: 58 last time I looked and you kept moving yeah. the, the goal.
1: Yeah. I got egged on by friends, um, who helped do that. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. Another great display of, of, uh, support and compassion by our community.
0: You know, I've, I think it's, it's important that people ask, I mean, it's sort of this funny thing where you see when people ask for help, they get it in this town. But when they don't, maybe they don't. But you asked for people to support and people came out in droves, small amounts, big amounts. Yeah. Um, Yeah, And that's a huge
1: amount of food for people.
0: Yeah. Because it's what? One dollar, seven meals or something like that.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right.
0: Um, San Antonio, so far, I was looking at the numbers two days ago. I don't, I don't think they've changed much. But San Antonio, in terms of sort of uh, sickness per thousand, we have been doing better than Harris, Dallas, Tarrant, Travis, El Paso. I mean, really, we've been doing a great job as a city. What are sort of the big metrics that you're looking at as a leader of the city? Because you hear all kinds of stuff of saying, "Don't well, don't look at test, uh, you know, sickness because that doesn't account for testing. Don't look at deaths because that doesn't account for these types of injuries that are happening." What are sort of the main metrics you guys are looking at when you're yeah. making decisions?
1: Well, that's a really important point to make that it's not just one sliver of data because I think it's a mistake to just zero in on one data point. Uh, it's, it's all part of a picture that you have to put together. It's a bit of a puzzle. Uh, but we look at, obviously, the infection rate, but not just the raw number. In fact, the raw number is almost meaningless. You have to look at how fast that raw number is doubling, the doubling rate. And when we started, we were at, you know, uh, doubling the number of infections every three days. We're now at 28 days. So it slowed down the, the doubling rate of infection. Uh, you also look at um, the level of testing that you're doing uh, per capita I don't know um, what our number is but in, but generally uh, based on our peers in Texas we're doing very very well in terms of testing uh, also you look at your uh, or what we we've been looking at is your positivity rate so as as um, you know and your infections start to the slow down in terms of the doubling you want to make sure that it's not you're not missing things. And so as you increase testing, you see your doubling rate slow down. You also want to see your positivity rate go down. And we started roughly around 10, 11 percent. We're now uh, last time we talked about it um, last week, we're at about 6.3 percent. So it's come down significantly. Um you also look at hospitalization data and that's probably the the most important one because ultimately when we talk about flattening the curve we're, we're making sure that our ability our capacity to treat the ill and infected uh is not exceeded by the level of infection that's out there and and we've been watching our hospital uh, capacity in terms of beds icu uh ventilators And, uh, you know, and that's dealt with in a number of ways. One is you increase capacity supply of things like PPE and staffing and, you know, ventilators, things like that. But you also can control the flow within your hospitals. And one of the things that we did early was uh, slow uh, and elective procedures that helped us get a real head start on hospital capacity, we've we've now gone back to elective procedures, and we're still maintaining capacity. It's a very good thing. Uh, all those things together, I, I think, give you a more complete picture of how we're doing. Um, we also, when it comes to opening things up, we also want to have the capacity to understand where we are uh, in terms of the virus and, and its presence in our community. And I don't think anyone is under the assumption that we're going to be able to say the virus is completely gone. Uh, We're not going to be there until we have 100% vaccinations. And frankly, we don't have that for anything anymore because of the anti-vaxxer movement. So uh, we've got to ensure that we have the ability to identify uh, where infections occur, viruses being uh, transmitted. We want to have the ability to uh, trace where that virus has moved. And then we have to have the ability to isolate that virus to keep it from spreading elsewhere. So testing uh, tracing and isolation becomes you know the the currency for us to be able to open things up and and we've been moving aggressively since it started we've obviously had federal and state issues to work through uh but we're we're um we're working aggressively to uh, meet the health transition team standards.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. You talk about testing, tracing and isolating, and it seems like there really is no coherent statewide or nationwide policy on this. Dr. Allegrini was on our show and we talked a lot about that. And she said that is, you know, that's going to be the gold standard to getting back to our day to day is the county or the city taking sort of up the reins of hiring and providing tracers where that's a, that's a lot of manpower. Where is that manpower going to come from?
1: We are, and um, you know, it's really about. And, and there's not a magic number. You got to be able to ha- trace uh, comprehensively every infection that comes through. And we've been able to do that. Uh, we want to be able to do that as the number of infections uh, increases, or if we hit a spike, we want to be able to to conduct all that properly. So we have obviously the Metro Health uh, staff. Uh, we also have um, staff within STRAC, which is the Regional um, Emergency um, Coalition, and then, of course, uh, we're working with various partners within the medical community uh, on a number of different things. And now and that includes tracing. So, uh, students, medical students, are starting to come yeah. on board and have been doing uh, tracing with us. We have seventy—I believe the number is seventy—tracers. We're we're training cohorts of, I believe it's 40. We just had the presentation yesterday. Our goal is by June one to have, uh, 175 tracers available to us, uh, during, you know, during the next phase of, of the pandemic. But, uh, the tracing work, which is a lot of interviews of people, uh, is very time intensive. Yeah. It's not extraordinarily complex work, but it's very time intensive and it takes a lot of patience uh, and compassion. And one thing that I wanna compliment our team about is that they have been able to stay on top of tracing uh, at a fairly high rate. We have never seen, up but for one day, the number of cases that we've reported uh, that are still under investigation exceed 100, which, you know, uh, compared to other peer cities, I'm told that is a really good standard to maintain. So we've been working aggressively on, on tracing, first, second, third level, um, contacts.
0: Well, I think the information that you're putting out on your Facebook and at those press conferences is fantastic. Um, I think it really kind of answers a lot of the questions that everybody has nationwide, statewide, y'all just sort of hit them, you know, in stride. I just personally want to know from like a pull back the curtain, what is the information flow like? Is it every hospital and facility, you know, do they call Metro Health? I mean, there's that's just so much information to synthesize on a day to day basis.
1: It is. And um, I don't see uh, I don't see the teams compiling that data, but I know what they're doing. So we have South Texas Regional Advisory uh, uh, Center. Uh, STRAC, which is coordinating all the hospitals within our eight-county region. And San Antonio is the center, and STRAC is the um, coordinating arm. Eric Epley is the director of STRAC, and so he coordinates that activity. And they they basically track all the hospitalization. They work with our fire department to look at transport data and, and see what Triggers there are, if there's a number of transports, for instance, coming from a particular nursing home, they know if they've got a problem. They track the transports on a daily basis in all the counties and they track hospitalization. That's data that is brought into our Metro Health Department. In addition to that, Metro Health is the receiving entity for all of the testing data uh, that occurs. So, all the numbers of people who have been tested positive, negative from different places, all the private labs, the state labs, the local labs. They all coordinate and they dump into Metro Health, with one exception. The private labs have not been doing it very well, despite our orders. So we have to go pull that data down from the state. Metro Health is doing all that work um, on on a on a daily basis and sometimes an hourly basis. In addition, Metro Health is also coordinating the contact tracing, and so we have congregate settings that we report, nursing homes, jail. Um, uh, other types of facilities where there's a lot of people uh, residing in one small place. So we track those separately and they coordinate that uh, information as well. Th- those are some of the, and then there's the testing arm, which is mainly a strack function. All of those pieces of information are brought together by Metro health. And at every day at 4:30, 30 uh, judge Wolf and I get briefed. We sit down with the entire team and we go, we go through each one of those, the, uh, sections and we, we get um, that data and that's when we go immediately onto the air and we report it to the public. It's not been um, it, it, we've obviously had some hiccups um, at the very start in terms of what we were reporting and what you know the media and the public wanted to hear. And so I, I give um, I give the whole group our community a lot of credit because people were very candid, uh, some uncomfortably so about what we need to hear. And I think on, on, the, on the medical side, the administrative side, there was a, a great degree of humility to take that, take the criticism from, from us and from the public and, and improve. And so today, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that today, I think we're kind of a, a bit of a gold standard. We are a gold standard in terms of the data that's being reported. Um, publicly, and and we're going to continue to do that, and it may change that the things that people need to see and and what they want to have access to, but I've always maintained, and the judge has, that our, our ability to fight this pandemic, to bring it to an end, depends much less on ordering people to do things than it is on putting public health professionals out front, putting the information out accurately, timely, and transparently, that way, the community trusts the process, trusts the medical professionals, and also is, is given the information they need to make informed decisions for the safety of their families. That ultimately has saved us over the last several, a couple of months, and certainly over the last several weeks, as we've seen mixed messaging from the state, um, because we've been able to say, okay, well, the state is saying, you don't have to, you, you know, you don't have to wear a mask, or, or the state is saying, we can't find you for not wearing a mask. Okay, we never find anybody to begin with, but you know what, everybody was wearing a mask because Dr. Emmerich, Dr. Taylor, Dr. Bridger, the entire health transition team was telling us, we can slow the spread of this virus, we can prevent the virus being picked up by someone from an asymptomatic carrier who might infect someone who could very well be severely ill or die. You can prevent that, you can break that chain if you wear a mask, so wear a mask. Um, even if we're telling you, the state says we can't find anybody for not doing that. Most people have been complying with that. And, and I give that is where the credit is due, um, that information, the process, the transparency, and ultimately the individual decision-making on behalf of a very compassionate community to, to do what's necessary to save people's lives.
0: Yeah. You've seen, you haven't seen some of the problems here that you've seen in other cities in terms of the the populace rising up against some of these very simple measures. And, and,
1: and, the faith community is one huge example of that. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't until, I mean, it was in I think the governor's first order where he uh, made great pains at saying churches are an essential service. Well, of course, but we also know that in, in uh, church settings, that's where some of the worst outbreaks have originated in other parts of the world, and in this own in this country. And so we uh, we followed that order uh, by by convening with the faith community, who is already proactive and yeah. in, in maintaining safety for their congregants. Said, look, um, the the services can go on. Uh, But what we would urge you to do is take a look at your congregations and understand the vulnerabilities there are there and where we are in terms of a substantial community spread of this virus. And if you have the ability to conduct services online, that's what you should do if you're interested in in really uh, preventing the spread of this disease within your congregation. And nearly all of the, the faith community continued to do what they were doing which is to host services online, maintain social distancing and so forth. And you even saw some of the faith um, leaders help those who didn't have the capacity to conduct their services. So everybody worked together. Yeah. It was beautiful. And, and it was despite the fact that we're getting mixed messages and some politicization from other areas of the state.
0: Yeah. I've, I had a deposition yesterday and a client who I thought that- there was no chance she was going to know zoom. She knew zoom because that's how she'd been going to church every Sunday. So it was yeah. sort of a lot of people getting exposed to this. Uh, I want to talk about sort of, you know, your wonderful relationship with uh, Ken Paxton in a little bit, but 1st <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. But first let's talk about sort of the current challenges for San Antonio. You've started splitting out that information as well, where it looks like we have, you know, the jail is a problem. Nursing homes are a problem. Um, those are going to have to, I would assume, be dealt with kind of differently than the population as a whole. What is sort of the, the, the plan on on handling those two, de- you know, really, you know, fragile populations?
1: Yeah. And we've seen nationwide uh, nursing homes, long-term care facilities are extremely vulnerable to outbreak. Um, and, and so let me get to that in just a second. I will say that prisons and jails are probably less so prisons. And the state has a big problem on its hands, I believe the judge believes with prisons. What's in our control is jails. And I have to say that jails probably present the single most challenging setting to control the spread of the virus uh, because of the fact that in in a jail setting, you have people coming in and out all the time in close quarters. So I give the, the county a lot of credit when Uh, they saw the first signs of infection. They went to the potting and isolating of people who were symptomatic. The other thing that they've been been doing with the cooperation of uh, San Antonio Fire Department, UHS, um, and even the uh, Texas Guard is testing everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they've been testing all the the guards. They've been testing all of the inmates. But the the challenge is the inmates, the, the population changes every day. So, um, what we've been doing again is, is trying to identify, uh, where the infections are, isolate those that are there. It's a mini, it's a mini city in there. So you, you try to do everything, testing, tracing and isolation. Has there been Nursing any wide
0: scale releases of, you know, nonviolence or some of those? I mean, has anybody been released? Are we not doing that?
1: So that happened, uh, well before the first infection okay. appeared. So they, they reduced jail population. Uh, over at the county uh, many, many weeks before the infection uh, and infection uh, occurred. And that w- it was very important because it helps with social distancing. Uh, and, and to be clear, no one released uh, was someone who uh, who did anything more than a minor offense. No violent uh, threats to the public were released uh, to to the public or released from jail. Uh, but they, but the jail population was uh, trimmed uh, of nonviolent offenders. And then of course the testing, tracing and, and isolation. On the nursing home side, uh, this is one area where uh, I think we have provided uh, a good standard for other communities to follow. Uh, first thing we did was we uh, inspected and worked with all of the long-term care facilities in the, in the county. There's over 150 of them in the city to talk to them about proper donning and doffing of PPE, that was done throughout March. Of course, you know there was an outbreak at Southeast Nursing Center uh, that that uh, that mushroom, but um, the way we were able to identify it is a new is a new protocol that was established for this occasion called ITAC, and you'd have to ask the Chief what that stands for, but. What it essentially means is that there is, a, is a, a real-time monitoring of nursing homes and long-term care facilities in terms of their transport cases. So anytime a EMS unit or any, any resident is transferred off of a long-term care facility, it flags. And uh, the, the profile of the case is a, a marker of whether or not we've got a problem. So they immediately go in there and they begin the testing, tracing, isolation. So in nursing homes, what we've been doing is preparing, uh, monitoring uh, for the ITAC, and then also uh, 100% testing. That includes asymptomatic testing. Uh, we, the state recently ordered that, but that's something we, we had already been conducting is universal testing, especially when there was, we prioritize if there was a single infection. Two other things, uh, the cohorting of, in, of positive cases whether they're symptomatic or not, you take uh, a, a resident who has a, who has a positive infection, you move them somewhere else. So they don't have to isolate on the property because it's, you know, it's just very difficult to make, to contain that. So we have the uh, cohorting facility at river city. Um, and that was, um, that was a bit of a challenge. Um, and then finally, uh, Oh, The last thing is we also, in orders uh, very early on, prevented the movement of staff from one facility to the next. If you work at a long-term care facility, you have to work at only one, and that prevents us from transferring infections that may not be detected yet from one facility to the next. And and they're limiting
0: visitors and all that in all the nursing homes now, aren't they?
1: Right, absolutely, yes. So in, in the first order also, we limited, uh, you, you, unfortunately you can't have visitors on and off of the long-term care facilities. It's just that, that population is especially vulnerable to infection and severity of disease.
0: A, a buddy of mine, his mother's in one and he, he applied and got a job so that he can see his mom. Cause otherwise they weren't going to let him in and see him. I mean, he's, he's a saint. Um, wow. What is our turnaround on testing now? Because I know that we had these just kind of wild leaps in, in, yeah. in, in our infection rates. And you would say, you know, we just had a tranche of results come in. Are we quicker on getting results back now?
1: Much quicker. Okay. And, and I, I will say there was a, a federal backlog um, and we weren't able to be a, we weren't able to get our data pulled down from the state because of, of uh, the two companies that the federal government contracted with. And they had literally hundreds of thousands of test results waiting to come out of the labs and it was taking upwards of nine days to get those test results back. That was early mid April. We decided to, to get rid of that and go with a local lab. So we've been contracted with CPL, um, here in town that has been able to turn over test results now in 24, sometimes 48 hours. So it's moving very quickly. Now, um, there, so, Um, There are some private labs that are conducting tests. Uh, If you go to, you know, your own private provider and they have tests, they could be contracting with some uh, with a company that takes longer to get your test results back. But if you're going through Freeman or one of our uh, pop up facilities, you you know, they were at Frank Garrett in Las Palmas and uh, will be on uh, the southeast side uh, and the east side this coming week or this week, I think starting tomorrow. Uh, you'll be able to get your test results back from the local labs, 24, 48 hours.
0: And that's important if we're going to try to have any response. Um, I want to, right. you know, I'm blessed to have one hour of your time, but I want to make sure we cover some things. You know, one of the things I heard a lot from, um, or when I said that you were going to come on the show was that San Antonio is a different city than Houston and Dallas in terms of how we survive economically and that we have Austin kind of dictating um, our economic transition, even though they are looking out for a state that really kind of doesn't look like San Antonio. Do we have a seat as San Antonio at the table when these discussions are happening in Austin to look out for our city that is very heavily hospitality, very heavily tourism, very heavily military? I mean, do we have a say in this, or are we just having top-down dictator kind of orders?
1: You're talking about the reopening of the economy? Mm Yes. Yeah, so we do have San Antonians on, on the economic team, uh, or, or the strike force, I guess he's, I guess he's calling in. Uh, but I've had many conversations with them, and I've had many conversations with uh, the governor. And um, as it relates to the reopening, what he's doing is he's taking feedback, and he's making the decision on his own. And that is, um, it's coming directly from the team. They're providing him feedback, but he's making the decision. Um, you know, uh, I, I agree with you, not every city functions the same, which is why we're going to, uh, to the extent of that, the law allows, make sure that it's calibrated properly for San Antonio. Um, you know, I think we're a little ahead of the game in terms of the, the health measures. So, uh, in, in speaking with Dr. Taylor and other members of the health transition team, they, they their focus is making sure our economic transition team has the data and builds their plan on top of the health priorities. And if you look at our economic transition team report, it is uh, grounded in the science and it also establishes best practices. So what you're seeing from the state, uh, from the governor's open Texas manual when he opens up uh, different businesses is you're seeing a set of minimum standards And it may be true that we can't necessarily restrict certain things beyond that. But what the economic transition team has done is articulate what best practices should be. And they've also uh, created a expectation on the part of these sectors, which I think is a correct one, that it's one thing to open a business, but it's another thing to get the economy started. Um, You will not succeed in business if you can't get people in the door and and your employees and your customers don't feel confident that they're going to be uh they're gonna they're they're gonna be safe uh and that you're gonna be able to you know maintain uh service of a level of quality that they expect so that's what the the economic transition team report is built on restoring consumer confidence which is derived from the science, the health transition team report.
0: Yeah. And maybe I haven't paid good enough attention, but it seemed early on that the governor took a position of local control, let our cities do what's best for their cities. And now it's gone into the to hell with that. Y'all need to not do too much that I don't agree with. Am I misreading this or is it kind of gone this like local control back to the old way of we don't like local control anymore in a span of 60 days?
1: You know, it could be characterized that way. Uh, We certainly had, in the absence of any emergency order from the state, uh, the locals were, uh, you know, left to do what was necessary. And so, you know, we didn't have a template sitting on top of us in terms of what we needed to do as a state. I I would say that um, it was helpful to us to be able to move quickly and appropriately for San Antonio, not to have a one-size-fits-all approach, but I will also tell you that it's the opposite of logical to take a one-size-fits-all approach to opening things up. The nature of this virus and any infection really is that a single point of entry, a single point of leakage is what ultimately can create an outbreak. And so it's really important, and I've stressed this to the governor and his team, that we need to have the ability, the authority, to act quickly to clamp down if there's an outbreak or an infection, and 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 that is that uh, requires us to have um, uh, the ability to calibrate when things open and how they open, and I think, you know, with the exception of our attorney general, uh, there is a, a a common understanding that that's the way it ought to work, even if you listen to the governor himself, Uh, because he's been been at least clear about this point, is that if there is an outbreak that happens in any part of the state, we've got to manage it and contain it. And he's taking a state control uh, perspective on that. We would disagree with that, obviously. We're going to do what we need to do locally. Uh, But at least there's an understanding that you can't just let an outbreak happen and expect the rest of the state to be okay. Um,
0: and then they're threatening, I a, mean, they're threatening to sue, San, I mean, Paxton is threatening to sue San Antonio over face masks and things like that. I mean, has that been a slow run up to that kind of threat? I mean, I read the press release, you know, if you want to get into litigation, has that been a slow run up to that kind of hostility? Or, or was this sort of the first just sort of opening, you know, salvo from Ken Paxton?
1: Uh, you know, Ken Paxton likes to make a lot of threats over press releases. We've gotten used to that from him. Um, and, you know, so we're going to continue to do what we need to do. It's logical, that's science-based. It's gotten us to the point where we've saved thousands of lives. And, and you know, if, if, uh, if, if there's disagreement about that, he can talk to my attorney.
0: Fair enough. Um, let's talk about we... Uh- I talked about it early on. San Antonio has done great comparatively to a lot of cities in America and most of the cities in Texas. We have, you know, the crushing economic concerns that are, you know, plaguing a lot of small businesses and things like that. What is sort of the evaluation in terms of our numbers look good on infections and fatalities, our numbers look really bad economically? Is this a health transition team that's going to make these final decisions, economic transition team, or are we still waiting on Austin to give us, you know, the the leeway that we can or cannot operate within?
1: Uh. What, say it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. F-
0: from the economic standpoint, since our health yeah. numbers are looking good comparatively, from the economic standpoint, are, do we have the freedom to open up as needed, or are we still being sort of told what we can and can't do by Austin?
1: Um, I, I Unfortunately, I think it's a, a lot of the latter um, in terms of the opening of things up. I mean, the, the, the governor wants to take it upon himself. To define what an essential business is uh, and what an, a reopened business is, and um, and I, and I and unfortunately he has that authority through the Texas Division of Emergency Management. Now I will say that uh, it seems to be that uh, his advisors and uh, and in my conversations with him is that he wants to do this the right way, uh, and he's taken a lot of cues from uh, the folks here in San Antonio as as having demonstrated. The ability to, to uh, control this virus and do it in a, in a safe and logical manner. Um, but, but but like I said, um, there the, the the state has taken the approach of minimum standards, we're going to continue to leverage our authority everywhere we can to, to do the right thing. And in the event there's a conflict, we're going to put all the information out there, that if this is something dumb that we've heard from somewhere else, do the right thing in the meantime.
0: So I wanted to talk to you about the health transition and economic transition committees and the working groups early on, there was a bunch of working groups designated. Then after some time, there was a health transition group, uh, committee, yeah. and then there was an economic transition committee. There's a lot of different working groups and committees. Can you just kind of generally give us an idea of what they're doing and who's, who's doing what?
1: Yeah. So the, the enemy of a pandemic emergency response is bureaucracy. <laughs> And we, we recognize that fully. And in order for us to deal with this, we're going to have to work through a bureaucracy. And so what the judge and I uh, in, uh, decided to do was basically restructure government, for lack of a better phrase, and do so in a way that the city council members and commissioners court members can work together um, on the urgent crisis at hand um, and not be siloed. And so we created we we, uh, paused the typical city council committees that meet every month that sort of work on policy and legislation and said, okay, let's put a pause on those and let's form new committees. But except uh, just city council committees and, and others, let's bring commissioners court and city council together and shape and form them around these urgent issues that we know are 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 incredibly important and let's get them moving and they can meet as often as necessary to identify the needs and fill the gaps. So we established a social services working group. We established a food and shelter working group and we established uh, the housing. I'm sorry, the, uh, employment and, and small business, uh, working group. And those groups of council members and commissioners, court members, and some community members dug into how do we solve these issues? Because, One one thing that was immediately evident that we couldn't just stick to the old bureaucracy is that um, we had all of a sudden 120,000 families in the food bank line. How are we going to solve that from a resource standpoint? So they were working on issues like that. In addition to that, you had an uh, uh, intergovernmental relations committee, uh, federal and state advocacy committee that was made up of commissioners, court, uh, and and council members and um, community members, and then and JBSA and folks like that. And then you also had a philanthropy. Um, uh, committee. Those two committees were identifying where the resources come from so that we can pair them up with the needs of the city. Worked extraordinarily well. They've been working for the last six weeks or so. They're going to wind down here at the end of the month as we get back into the old committee structure again. Um, So that was the urgent immediate crisis needs of the city and the families of the city. In addition to that, we wanted to make sure that we're doing this in a methodical way as we begin to open up and that we didn't just carelessly go into this and we don't carelessly get out of it. And so uh, we formed a health transition team. And I, I should also credit Gordon Hartman coordinated the working groups. He did an extraordinary job. So we decided also to form the health transition team to make sure that as we contemplate open up opening up, that we do so based on some strict health guidance uh, and conditions that, that we need to be cognizant of that would allow us to open things up safely. What kind of testing capacity do we have to have? What kind of tracing, um, what, um, what should the data look like and what triggers should, should we be aware of to know that we might be going too far? That's what the health transition team did, Dr. Barbara Taylor's team. And then finally, we formed a economic transition team that w- was representative of all the small businesses and sectors in our community that we asked to layer on top of the health transition team guidelines, take a look at the local health guidelines and, and give individual businesses based on what kind of business they are guidance into how they can start up again and begin to restore our economy. So all these were iterative processes, brought the community together, but kept everybody in our limited bandwidth focused on the task at hand. And, and I think when all, when it's all told, Um, our success will be tied to the fact that people were nimble. They were able to kind of reform, uh, under duress into these areas that helped us point the path forward and get it done effectively.
0: Um, does the economic transition and health transition committee have ongoing duties. They're going to sort of keep going until we're out of this, or they got a lifespan.
1: Um, they really only, they had a lifespan, for the guidelines related to the health opening, and, and it's an extraordinary report, and it's and, and Rick Acey had a wonderful column about Barbara's uh, team and the report they had compared to the state. Uh, so that report is what are, we're focused on. The economic transition team also had, you know, their guidelines for sectors. Now, um, they're loosely still coordinated, and we may go back to the economic transition team. Maybe there's some sector guidance that we're missing. Maybe there's some uh, advisory uh, functions that they can serve as we begin to establish. There's, you know, there's a PPE pipeline that they recommended. There's also, you know, the the guidance for um, a lo- go local type of campaign. We're going to need to tap the well yeah, that's a little great. bit with the expertise there. Uh, and on the health side of things, we need experts um, that have a 360 degree view of the city to be able to tell us, you know, heads up you got something coming down the road. There's a trigger that you need to be watching out for people that, that are are familiar enough with the process and the pandemic itself to be able to help us through that. And they're loosely formed as well. And, and, and I I do see us tapping their expertise.
0: Uh, Ron, I know you've got important things to do. I want to leave it. You know, there was the reporter asked Trump, you know, a lot of people are, are scared and all those things. And he said, well, you're a terrible reporter, but I think it's a real question that I want to know. Like, I hear from people, I feel the anxiety and I'm not a high anxiety person. What is sort of, what do we hold on to? What do we look forward to, to let us know we're coming out of this, to let us know we're going to fiesta again, to let us know that we get to continue to be this city at some point. What is your advice for, for your constituents?
1: You know, know that uh, we will get through this. I mean, you you just have to have faith that we will. And, And where I derive my faith that we will get through this from is those compassionate acts but also knowing that this community is poised to be better than it was before you know it's not going to look the same in six months from now when we're enjoying some of the things that we can't do right now it's not going to look the same people are going to have to get used to wearing masks and stuff until until we have a vaccine we're just gonna have to do things that we just never thought were strange maybe six months ago Um, but I, I will say this that's a a kind of, um, that's a, a, a city and a community that maybe looks a little strange um, sitting here right now, or, or maybe two months ago it would have. But, but also consider the fact that when, as we're getting out of this, we're not trying to go back to the old way. We're really not. Um, I think it would be a huge mistake. Um, you know we should not be rushing to get back to the way things were we can be a whole lot better than that um keep in mind that this city was blazing in terms of its economy we had a three percent unemployment rate for you know three six months i think um meanwhile we had um 15 poverty in this community yeah how does that compute you know we it's shocking that our food bank lines doubled to 120,000 people when this pandemic began, but that means the way things were before on a normal day in San Antonio that 60,000 families were depending on the food bank for food. You know, 40 percent I think, or, or some astronomical number of families in San Antonio didn't have access to the internet to do homework, uh, to to um, you know order food. And, and that, was, that was the way things were. I don't wanna go back to the way things were. We're not gonna be able to go back things the way things were. We have the ability to use what we've known and what we, we, we can do and be a city that is, we're much prouder to leave our children, and our grandchildren. And yeah, it's gonna feature things for a while like masks and things like that. But, but what I see out in the community, and compassion and the outpouring of support for one another is something that I think this city can be built from and a foundation that's that's equitable, more resilient, um, and stronger than it ever was before. And I'm excited to get through this because that's what we're going to.
0: Well, Ron, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of San Antonio. I'm proud that we have done as well as we have done under such terrible circumstances. I hope you continue to kick ass and do a great job and know that I'm pulling for you and everybody I know is pulling for you right now. And, uh, thank you for making some time for, for us to chat, to, to give a little color to what's going on and a little levity. So good luck. And hopefully you'll come join us again. Maybe, uh, when we're not wearing masks,
1: I look forward to it, Justin, I can't wait to see you in person and let's go get a pint at friendly spot real soon.
0: I'm in for it. Thanks Ron. All right. Take care.
1: See you later, man. Take care.
0: All right, that about does it for this episode of the Alamo Hour. Uh, again, thank you so much to Ron Nirenberg uh, taking time out of his busy schedule, leading the seventh largest city in America, to come and talk to us. Uh, that's a great, it's a great thing for our show. It's great to see that our, our our mayor supports these you know small podcasts like myself and and gives a little bit of levity and a, and a little bit of humor on occasion to to a tough time. We're continuing with our um, guest wish list uh, Shay Serrano we have tweeted to you um, same for Jackie Earl Haley we'll, ho- we'll hope that one of them will come on we've gotten uh, Ron Nuremberg now at this point to come on after he has been on our wish list and Robert Rivard is going to come on and, and, and the consummate wish list is always going to be Coach Pop so thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour you are all what make this city so great we hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash AlamoHour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, Viva San Antonio!